church family, and uh, isn't the Lord good to us? Um, and, and what a feast and what a, 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 just a pleasure to hear each and every one of you and your contributions to worship. I'm so, so very grateful. It's good, good to be with you. Would you um, turn with me to Matthew, the 20th chapter? We'll read the first 16 verses. And uh, you might have seen already that expression, the evil eye. And you thought, what is the preacher up to there, right? But uh, before we get through with this passage, we'll come to verse 15. And our translation sort of gives you the effect of it. And it cautions these folk who feel like they've been maybe treated unfairly not to have this jealous spirit. But quite literally, it says there not to have the evil eye. But instead, don't be having the evil eye because I'm good, (laughs) is the protest of the owner. And I just want to say something to you about what I think this parable is about in part and about this evil eye. There's places in the scripture where this evil eye is discussed. It it emerges in the book of Proverbs. There's an extended warning about this kind of envious and jealous eye. And then later uh, in chapter 28, I think explicitly explicitly kind of mentions this very phrase. You'll see it appear again in the New Testament as well. It even makes its way into the Lord's uh, Sermon on the Mount. And uh, many of you know culturally that this phenomena still is observed and so on. And it's the notion that perhaps by a gaze or a a, a particular attention, a glance can bear evil and even cause injury and and so on. And so you'll find customs varying from place to place where sometimes children are sort of guarded or shielded from a sort of, um, is it an envious or mean-spirited look, and so on. Now, I don't know what to tell you to do with that altogether. If if you're asking me if I believe it, I'll have to tell you, I hope it doesn't spook you too much, but that I do. I do think there's kinds of evil environments and conditions like that that can actually cause injury. I think that's probably what the Lord is up to when He tells us That we should pray for spiritual protection to be rescued from the evil one and to be guided in our path. But at a minimum, I think we need to understand this. That there's something poisonous that happens to us when we have this sense of entitlement. And then we have this sense of anger and mean-spiritedness. And that spills over from our hearts, and it shapes the way we see the world around us. And if for no one else, it's dangerous for the person who looks through that evil lens or that evil eye. So this is the warning, and I think this is sort of near the punchline of the the parable. Before, Jesus has warned them that Things are going to change. And in that verse 16, there's this notion about the reversal, right? The last will be first, and the first last. And Jesus, I think, uses this in a variety of ways. 
he most typically kind of predicts a, a fruit basket turnover. In other words, before the end of the world, the world is not going to end, by the way, the way it is now. There will be proud people on top who live their lives in defiance and prove to be uh, uh, victimizers and, and aggressors and oppressors of holy people all over the globe, taking advantage of them, living their own life, being their own God, and they're going to be thrown down. And the ones who depend upon the grace and goodness and provision of God are going to be lifted up. Things are not going to end as they are now. There comes a fruit basket turnover. That's part of what the end will involve. And the high and mighty and proud who defiant to go their own way without God will be cast down. And the poor and needy who trust in God at every terms, in, in every term, they are going to be vindicated and lifted up. Here I believe Jesus uses this word and applies it a little differently. Here I think he's warning the disciples who've been swept into the glory of God, who've been brought into Jesus' entourage, who are now part of his people and have been walking along the way. He warns them that the days ahead are going to be hard on them. Not only are they not going to understand and process when Jesus goes to his death, and Jesus is humiliated, and they're going to not understand it, and they're going to run away and be frightened they won't really begin to put things together until the Spirit stirs them when Jesus is raised from the dead. But along the way, they're going to struggle terribly because they think they're entitled. They've been going with Jesus all along. They've been on the inside. They've got a place. Now, forget the fact that don't, they don't really much understand anything, and they're, and they're missing it. And just after this passage, see, Jesus predicts that he's going to die for a third time. And just before this passage, he's told them, the Gentiles are coming. Uh, what, 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 we're, what God is doing in us is going to spill over out of who we are as ethnic people into the world at large. God's, God's focus isn't just on who we are, fellow Hebrew folk, right, in this movement to recapture who, he, who Hebrews really are. God's vision is for the entire world across every race and color. And what God is doing in us is going to spill over to work in the Gentiles. And they'll come around and they'll become missionaries. But it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Because they'll see new people being brought into Jesus' movement. And they'll think, really? <laughs> that, that person? Those people? <laughs> and it's going to be hard. They're going to be looking through an old lens that's inappropriate anymore, a, a lens from their old identity, from their false conceptions of what discipleship should be, and that they've earned a place, and they're in the inner circle, and, and they've got a spot. Remember, they were asking, who's going to be first? Can I be first? Can I be first? <laughs> and Jesus has to teach them. That to really get in sync with this kingdom, you've got to get happy about giving the kingdom away. 
and sharing it to people. And yes, God will bring people into this kingdom that don't deserve it. You're exactly right. <laughs> but neither did you, right? And so it's about a change of heart and change of mind. And he is patiently, patiently enduring his disciples who just don't get it. Will you follow along as I read to you? From chapter 20, the book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Once there was a man who went out early in the morning to hire some men to work in, the, in his vineyard. He agreed, agreed to pay them the regular wage, a single silver coin for that day. Some of you Bible scholars know that's the denarius you've remembered in translations. And he sent them to work in his vineyard. And he went out again to the marketplace at nine o'clock in the morning and saw some men standing there doing nothing. And so he told them, you also go and work in the vineyard and I will pay you a fair wage. Those others, we believe, started first light, something what we would approximate in our clock. Remember, they don't have our dial exactly worked out exactly right. The length of time and days varies from season to season, right? And so they're working off of approximate kind of a measure. But the idea is this. They started early. Now, in, what you, in some of your translations, the third hour comes. Three hours later, it's 9 o'clock. Our translation does us the service of giving us the approximate time in, the, in our lingo. And notice they came along and took up his challenge to work for a wage he promised would be fair. It proves to be not less than fair, but more, right? And then in verse 5, so they went, and then at 12 o'clock, and again then at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. And it was nearly 5 o'clock, an hour left in the day, 5 o'clock. And he went to the marketplace, and he saw some other men standing there. Why are you wasting the whole day here doing nothing, he asked them. And they answered, well, no one hired us. Well, then, you go and work in the vineyard, he told them. Now, just as an aside... Can you just be mindful of me? Many of you have that old translation. It says the 11th hour. Imagine a person living their life, almost living their life till it's done, and having wasted their life, never knowing God, never being brought into God's story and the blessing of being a part of what God is doing to, to, to reach and redeem the world, wasting their lives. <laughs> wow. Could God be that remarkably good to get the invitation even at the 11th hour? Verse 8, when evening came, the owner told his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages. He tells them, notice this, starting with those who were hired last and ending with those who were hired first. This uh, contrivance, I think, is among other reasons. Uh, so the, those who had come first could see what the others earned. Then the men who had begun to work at 5 o'clock, just a, an hour or so left in the day, 
were paid a silver coin each. And so when the men who were the first to be hired came to be paid, they thought they would get more, but they too received a silver coin each. They took the money, but they started grumbling against their employer. These men who were hired at last worked only an hour. They came while we put up with the whole day's work in the hot sun. Yet you paid them the same as you paid us. Now here's the rationale of the owner in response. The verbs kind of capture things and summarize them nicely. Listen, my friend. The owner answered one of them. I have not cheated you, right? After all, we agreed, you agreed, to do the day's work for one silver coin. So take your money and go home. Who was hired last, I want to give this man who was hired last as much as I gave you. And don't I have the right to do as I wish with my own money. Now the question, or are you going to be looking through the evil eye over this? Are you going to be jealous because I've been generous? Are you going to have the evil eye because I've extended and exercised the good eye, the generous eye? And Jesus concluded, So you see, those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. Now, envy and jealousy uh, ended ended up mixing up in in our culture. They probably ought to be parsed, Um, but it gets kind of technical and tedious when you Look how these words are used in the Bible. The truth is this. There's good usages of words like zealousness and jealousy. God has every right to be jealous over what is His in that sense of the word. But there's also occasions where we use these words where we sense a very definite moral failure. We can be jealous when we think we sort of are entitled to something or something belongs to us and we guard it and we're fearful. We're worried, among other things, when someone gets something that's less for me to have and so we can exercise a a mean-spirited, ugly kind of jealousy. It's not very nice at all. And then we can have something in the object of our eye that is maybe not rightly ours and, and yet we're worried that maybe somebody gets an advantage over us if they get something that more than generous day's wage seems to work terribly on those first coming, right? They just can't get it out of their head that the other people got the reward for much less labor. It just doesn't seem right. And so they have this envy, this evil eye, and this is the warning that Jesus leaves for his listeners. We've read this differently, and this story's been read all over the map, honestly. There's a lot of different, long history of of different interpretations. 
But I'm suggesting to you that I think it make, makes sense, at least in one of its meanings or bearings, it makes sense for these disciples. Again, they've been told the Gentiles are coming. They're part of what I'm doing. They hear that like they hear so much of what Jesus says. They kind of nod and it registers, but they don't know what to do with it. It doesn't show up on their screen and their imaginations. It doesn't change their way of looking at are doing things, and they're going to hear again for the third time that Jesus is, is, is going to die, and he's going to be mistreated, and, and they're going to have to follow him in, in this mistreatment and face suffering and hardship. And, and they hear that, and they nod, and they don't get it. It doesn't show up on their screen. They don't know how to act accordingly. They're just, they just don't get it. The old churchman from Egypt long years ago, a man named Athanasius, said, you know, they don't get it because they, they can't put these pieces together until they see the Son really revealed in the death and the resurrection. And it's only then that they can go back and kind of put these together. And I think he's largely right. All this time later, I think he's largely right. And so they're, I think, the objects of what Jesus is talking about. Because it's going to be hard for them to see so many new people come and be swept into the movement. And at every turn, they're going to be thinking, but that but that was me. That was what I used to do, right? I mean, that was my place, right? And it's hard for them. And I want to suggest this to you. I want you to see, not to be overwhelmed by just guarding and worrying about our own kind of envious spirit, our own kind of resistance to missions, our own kind of uh, struggles to kind of welcome and, and, and engage people in faith and, and bring them into the walk with us, I just want to say to you, don't face the hard word of God's challenge without noticing this, that God is incredibly patient. Notice Jesus has called these followers. They have followed him they have sacrificed, some of them, significantly for him. They've given up their places with their families and so on. They've broken the bonds of family and, and blood and land. I mean, those are really serious in the ancient world. And, and they've instead made this their new family of faith. And they've gone with Jesus and tracked after him and walked with him. They've given up a lot. They've come a long way. And yet they have so far to go. Jesus could have sent them packing any number of times. But what you need to see is that Jesus stayed with them. Even when they had so faint an understanding of what was going on. And so faint an understanding of even who they were and what they would become in God's plan. That was not even on their screen. But I want to tell you it was on Jesus' screen. And he walked through them with them through their hardness and through the times they didn't understand and then in the times when thinking weren't, weren't, things weren't making sense and they reverted to kind of old behaviors that weren't very flattering and so on. And Jesus was there. He was there when they fell asleep, when he was praying. He was there when they, he would pour out his heart. This is what's happening to me. And they say, what? <laughs> oh, well, that, be that as it may, God. But when we get there, can I be number one? Can I be number one? 
they just don't get it. And again and again, you would just wonder, how can Jesus put up with any more? But the truth is this, I want you to see it. Jesus does put up with so much. I want you to understand Jesus walking with his disciples is an exercise of grace and patience. And he does the same thing with you and me. And the truth is this, some of you may not even know who you are. You're not a self-made person. You don't get to direct your course. The truth is this, you are who God says you are and who God calls you to be. And that's the real you. But that is unfolded along the way when we just learn to trust that even though we're kind of a mess and we're a work in progress, we sense that Jesus has not abandoned us, but we sense that we are with him on the journey and he, more importantly, is with us. And he has not given up on us and he is still speaking patiently. And he's telling these disciples, you've got some hard rethinking to do on this issue, and you are not where you need to be. And he is moving them toward the people they need to be. He's moving them toward a people that will embrace the gospel message being poured out across the nations. Simon Peter has a long way to go, you know, and the rest of them do too. But notice, Jesus is with them all the way. Patient, patient, enduring their misimpressions and staying with them. I'd like you to sort of think with me about this passage in several ways. I, I want to say something to you personally about this message. I want to say to you, um, some of you are struggling and, and some of you are saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting where I need to be. And and you've done a little calculation, and you know that this kind of mean-spiritedness is still a part of you. And you know that the grace of God that has been extended to you is not easily extended to you, to others. And you're just worried if it's going to take effect, and you're worried that it may go anywhere. And I just want to tell you, my hope for you in salvation is not how well you've come along, but my hope for you is this, in all of your struggles to come along, my hope is this, that you are not alone and your Savior is there with you. And he endures your failure. And he somehow holds on to the hope and promise in you. And he doesn't just write you off of what you are in the least, the worst failure and in, in the most, in the, in the kind of forfeiture and compromise of what, what you could have been and what you should have been. He still sees you and loves you for what he's, made you and who you are and the destiny you'll have in him one day and God is still with you in the trenches and I want to tell you when you're worried don't give up but be awakened to this the fact that you're struggling with this is probably a sign that the presence of the Lord is still there with you still wooing you still calling you and I want to say to you along the journey, we don't always get it so right. I don't want to excuse you, and I don't want to tell you just to take your feet off the pedal, and you don't have to, you don't have to try and so on. But I want to tell you this. It's opposite the way you, try, way you think. In other words, when you think in your own strength, you've kind of got it and you've arrived. You probably don't. When you kind of realize that you're always struggling to meet God's standard, that's where you need to be. And you'll find when you're there, when you're trying to recover this generous eye to see the world through God's eyes and to see the world in God's story and to see God, people as God sees them and to even see yourself this way, I want to say to you, it's a sign 
It's a sign that the God who has called you has not given up on you. He's with you there in the trenches. And you don't despair. But you be awakened because you're so close. Because when you see that this present God is still there through all the mess and through all the hardship and still loves you and is wooing you, you're ready to change and become someone different. And to be awakened and be changed to give up this old sense of self and, and, and this, this idea of, the, of our identity that we make for ourselves and, and guarding our kind of property and where we are and so on and who we are. and Instead, to see the world through God's generous eyes and be moved. There's a Savior who's called you, who's still near you, still loving you and still helping you. And when you realize that, you'll start changing like you could never change in your own strength. But you can change in his strength. And I want to encourage you along the way, if you feel like you're the victim and you feel like this is what possesses you and this is something that's marked you and so on, I just want to say to you, there is... Failure in all of us, and we all have this rise up within us, but we can all rediscover who we really are in Jesus Christ when you realize that he's there right with you. You know, there's a, I've challenged you to be awakened to the Lord's presence. I've challenged you uh, through this season to pray the Lord's Prayer to recite it to yourself, to paraphrase it, or to read it before you go to bed and, and as you wake up in the morning. And let me give you another challenge. There's a, a challenge, and you wouldn't believe it. There's a string of testimony where people who have taken this challenge have been awakened to the spiritual life and begun to walk again. And it sounds so simple and simplistic, but I just want to, I want to pass it along. Among other people, Mother Teresa used to advise people to do this and practice it most of her life. And when you wake up, I just want to challenge you. You do this for 10 days. You do this for 10 days and see if you're not awakened to the presence of the Lord who's still with you and wooing you and trying to move you along. You just get up in the morning and you say something like this. Sounds kind of ridiculous, but here it is. Good morning, Jesus. Right? You just say, good morning, Jesus. And somehow it sets off in your mind and your heart that you're not going to ignore the claim of the gospel and the hope of the gospel and go on and live your life, but you're acknowledging first thing when you get up in the morning that you are not alone and he is with you in the trenches and he is with you to woo you along. You just watch and see if the Lord won't bless the simplest of things and the simplest of practices when we acknowledge he's there with us. And we're attentive, and we learn to be prompted to listen. And your whole way of seeing the world can change. It's what God has for us as our destiny. And I want to ask you to think with me about how we see others. And the truth is this, uh, this is nothing new to the disciples. This was very much present in in Israel, there's a lot of uh, church family that, uh, across the world that are reading the book of uh, Jonah this morning. And it fits and sets really much what, what we're saying. 
You remember that story about Jonah running away and so on? When you go to chapter 4, which is what the church is reading this morning all over the globe, a lot of them are reading that chapter 4. And do you remember that? He's preached a kind of begrudging message that God's going to come, God's coming, the time is up, and and your time is over, and God's going to judge you. And apparently with no more finesse and and, uh, appreciation on his part than that, the people of Nineveh, the, the, the most aggressive warriors and maybe some of the most evil people in the world that Jonah would know, those people, they respond to God and they start repenting. I think the book's intended to be kind of humorous the way it describes their repentance. Even the cows are repenting. I don't know what that means other than that's pretty serious repentance, right? And again, when the patient God goes to Jonah and tries to reason with him, Jonah spells out his evil eye. His stinginess with God's grace. And there in chapter 4 you learn what, what really was going on. Why he ran the other way. Why he submitted to the idea that he'd be thrown overboard and on and on. You figure it out. You see it now for all its ugliness. Because he's mad at God that he brought the grace to these people. He's telling God, I just knew you would do this. I just knew you would do this in the trenches when you got, even with these evil people, I knew you would do this. I just knew when they repented, you'd you'd let them in. You'd be gracious to them. You see, he's got this evil eye. And you and I have to cultivate the vision of Jesus and not be stingy. And I want to tell you, when you look around the world, you're going to see all kinds of people who are not deserving of God's grace. You've seen it in your own life, right? And now I want to tell you, you're just going to find person after person who's not deserving of God's grace. On our scale, maybe some less than others. But I want to tell you this. Don't let the evil eye rule you and rob you of the vision of Jesus who sees in the brokenness of the world people he wishes to reclaim. And what if we looked at them as if though God was extending grace to them and if they took that grace, God would redeem them. By the way, when they find their way in here, if they were a mess before, they're still going to be a mess. You get what I'm saying? But what do Jesus' people do? We're going to be patient. Patient. Like Jesus has been patient to us. And I just want to say to you, I think what God wants to do for you as a church family Look at you this morning. You just look so great, and he's brought you through so much, and there's still other stuff to go ahead, I know, and there's challenges ahead, but I just think there's a day ahead for you that is a wonderful thing that God wants to do, and God has a purpose, and he has some leadership here to, to guide you and so on, and I, I just think there's, there's a future. He, he'll put in place all that he needs to put in place here, and, and part of that is not just sort of, excuse me for using preacher talk, but not just prisoner transfer. Not, in other words, not somebody who's in one church who's just coming over to, to be in our church. Uh, although I think God will add some good church workers in our midst who will come, and, and we need them. We, we need terribly. We need leadership, and we need servants and so on. We, we need them, and I think that'll be part of what God does. But I don't think he'll bring them here just so we'll end up with a bigger market share than we have now. 
I think he wants us when we are prepared for our future. I think he wants us to be in the business of doing this remarkable work of speaking out the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing people who are not believers now come to believe. And I want him to change my heart and my vision. And I know I can't say, well, you know, I've sat in this chair this many years, and my parents used to sit in this chair before me, and I did this, and I, I, and I, you know, I've been giving all along, and I've been serving here for so long. I, let me tell you, I completely understand in church work the idea of that kind of entitlement. But I want to tell you, there's a great joy that we're being robbed of when we can't set aside this lens that's just not fitting with Jesus anymore and see the lens of grace. And it changes the way we behave and the way we look. And we'll all of a sudden be to a place to say, well, this has been my seat, my family's seat for years, but what, won't you sit here? <laughs> right? Can't we, can't we gather in a, a sense of grandeur and vision and hope that what God wants to do here is bring so many more into his grace and I can't be stingy with that grace I've got to get his heart in his mind in his good eye to see the grace and generosity and so I want to challenge you personally I want to challenge you as a church family I want to move us all to this place where we realize that this stinginess with God's grace just is not fitting. And we will learn to call people to accountability, and we will learn to grow, and we will learn to grow and be accountable ourselves. But we will learn that because we are sure in the midst of all of our starts and stops and not getting it right that Jesus is there with us. And when everybody else has every good reason to give up on us, Jesus still has our hope. And Jesus is still with you on the journey. And if you can just grasp that, you're on your way. Oh, that I could say, with every morning of my life, good morning, Jesus. And know he is with me.